Our Father in heaven, we just come before your presence once again today, asking, Lord, one, once more for your blessing upon this service. And we pray, Lord, that you will be honored, that your word will be explained clearly, and that you, Lord, will be glorified through it all. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, because we're celebrating Christmas this week, I would like to just take you through a tour of the Old Testament regarding the Messianic prophecies, which a lot of people are ignorant of. They have never been taught them. But <clears throat> the Word of God is so clear in everything that pertains to everything, but especially at this time <clears throat> about the birth the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, Christ, Christ is regarded as the coming one. <clears throat> for centuries, the Hebrew people were waiting for their Messiah. And uh, in the Old Testament, the gospel is coming into being from the beginning, from the book of Genesis. And it tells us what he is. That's the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us what he is. The New Testament tells us who he is. And that one is Jesus Christ. Um, and in such a way that it becomes evident that Jesus is known only by him who recognize him as, recognizes him as the Christ. And only he who knows the Christ knows that he is Jesus. Okay? So the, the two testaments correspond to two chief names of the Redeemer. The Old Testament to the name of his vocation, the Christ. Or as it is known in Hebrew, Mashiach or the Messiah. Messiah or Mashiach and Christ or Christos okay, is the same title. It's not a name. It's the title. He is the anointed one. Okay? Both mean the same thing. And the New Testament, the Old Testament gives us his title, Mashiach, the Christ. But the New Testament gives us his personal name, Jesus, Jesus. And Yeshua in Hebrew means God is my salvation. Okay? So we see that both are inspired by one and the same Holy Spirit and uh, explain each other. Now, exactly the sa that same word, Christos, was used in the Greek Bible of the Jews in Egypt three centuries before Christ was even born. Okay? And it's called the Septuagint. Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it in books as an L and two X's. That's the number 70, the Roman number 70. And it symbol, I mean, it, it tells us that 70, exactly 73, but 70 translators worked to translate for the first time in history the Old Testament, which was all that existed at the time, from Hebrew into the Greek language, which was the universal language at the time in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Half of the translators were uh, Hebrews from his Jews from Israel, and the other half were Jews from the Hellenic world or the Greek world. 
and both spoke Hebrew and Greek. So together, they got together and they um, translated the Old Testament into the new, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Hebrew into the Greek. Now, in, I said that because that name Christos, though it does not appear in the Old Testament as, as such, it does appear in the Greek Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, because in Psalm 2, where, which is the first messianic psalm, in, chapter, in uh, Psalm 2, verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against, against His anointed. And that word anointed in Greek is Christos. So in the Septuagint, the name Christos appears. In the Hebrew, of course, it says Mashiach. Okay? So we, and not only it appears in Psalm 2, but it also appears again in 2 Samuel 2.10 in Hannah's prayer, Samuel's mother. She uses the name anointed, Mashiach, Christos in the Greek. And also in Daniel 9.25, where he gives us the great prophecy about the uh, crucifixion of the Messiah. All right, so now the person of the Messiah or Christ, uh, we know now who he is, of course. And before come, becoming man, Christ is already at the center of his, the history of salvation. His presentation in the Old Testament is one of anticipation. And at the same time, it is a self-presentation. For the spirit of Christ was in the prophets Peter tells us in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 11, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. The prophets prophesied about the Christ. Okay, and the pre-Christian history of Revelation is a history of Christ before he came. Now, first of all, when you speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to speak of his humanity. God become man. And I say that again and again and again. Jesus was not someone, was not a man who claimed to be God. Jesus is God become man. That fabulous God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That great Elohim, Yahweh, and all the names of the Old Testament. That is Him. Okay? So, throughout the centuries... Old Testament prophecy described the humanity of the Savior in ever-narrowing and concentric circles of light, like a pyramid ascending upwards. First of all, we have the family of Jesus. Did you ever read the Gospel of uh, Matthew and the Gospel of Luke? And you saw all those names there? And you say, wow, do all those, what do all, all those names mean? Okay, I'm glad you asked, because I'll explain that today. Now, the Savior of the world descends from mankind. And he is the woman's seed. In Genesis 3.15, we have the first prophecy about the Messiah. When the Lord tells Satan that the seed of the woman, interesting, he says the seed of the woman, not of the man. The seed of the woman Okay, and your seed, I'll put enmity between the two. Now, the seed of the serpent, you know, it's talking to Satan, and the seed of the woman, we know that in prophecy is the Lord Jesus. Okay, and he says, You shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. 
the Lord was wounded at the cross and he died but he rose again it was a temporary wound and a temporary death but the blow that he dealt Satan he has never recovered from it yet regardless of what the world looks like there is a song that says it is always darkest just before the dawning okay and you see that days are getting darker and darker and I don't mean the equinox I mean spiritually Okay, the whole world is getting darker and darker and darker. Okay, because people are turning away from God more and more and more. And that was, even that was prophesied in the Bible, that a tremendous apostasy would come before the Lord returned. So we all must join together and pray the last one. I was telling it to my niece yesterday. She says, I'm so sick and tired of all this. I said, yep. She says, I want to go to heaven already. I want Jesus to come so I don't have to watch Nancy Pelosi. I don't have to watch Cuomo. I don't have to watch de Blasio. I don't have to watch any of these people. And I said, don't worry about it. I said, do you know what the last prayer in the Bible is? She says, I don't remember. I said, it says, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's the last prayer in the Bible. So we all need to join together and pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. You know when the Lord is going to come? When the people of Israel recognize their sin. And what sin is that? The whole world has sinned, but the nation of Israel recognizes their sin of unbelief. And they, re, uh, they accept him as, recognize that he is the Messiah. Okay? So we see here that the Savior of the world descends from mankind. And I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but every day that I live, I feel more of a stranger in this world. The things of this world don't appeal anymore. It's time to go to heaven. Right? Amen. But the first thing we see, again, is that the Savior descends from mankind, the woman's seed. Then, from all the nations of mankind, because after Noah, nations were made, right? Were created. And uh, from all the nations of mankind, out of Shem, Shem's family. Shem was one of the three sons of Noah. And out of Shem's family, according to Genesis 9.26, the Savior would come. Not just now any nation in mankind, but the nation of Shem. Noah prophesied, prophesied around 2300 B.C. In other words, 4300 years ago. And said that he would come, not just from any man, but through the nation founded by Shem. And we know who the descendants of Shem are. They're called Semites. Now, Semites are the Jews and the Arabs. Okay, so now, after that, from among all the Shemites, he would come out of the seed of Abraham. Okay, out of the seed of Abraham. And we see that in Genesis 12, when God gives Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. That he tells him that he will, in your seed, shall be blessed all the nations of the earth. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And that has never failed throughout the centuries. Every nation, every person that has cursed the Jews has been cursed. Okay? 
and uh, everyone that has blessed them, God has blessed. So we see that God's promise to Abraham went around 1900 or 2000 years BC. Then after that, from all the nations descended from Abraham, because Abraham had other children besides Isaac, okay, out of Israel, uh, proved by the transmission of the covenant made to Isaac and then to Jacob around 1800 BC. We see that in Genesis 26 and in Genesis 28. In Genesis 26, he promises that to Isaac. In Genesis 28, he promises that to Jacob. So then you know the story. Jacob and all his children ended up in Egypt, right? So on his deathbed, Jacob, who had 12 sons, gives them his blessing, okay? Uh, from among all the Israelites, he would come out of one of the tribes, one of the 12 sons of Abraham, and uh, I'm sorry, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And out of his children, one of them would be the one through whom the Messiah came. So now we know from the Bible that he came through Judah. Now Judah was not the firstborn. Judah was the fourthborn. Okay? And, uh, and that was around 1700 B.C. Genesis 49.10. Now Reuben was the firstborn and had the right of the firstborn but because of his sin he, he lost his firstborn rights and the right concerning the Messiah he forfeited it now the second son the next two brothers were Simeon and Levi it should have come to one it should have gone to one of them but they were also excluded. Why? Because of their bloody deed and their deception with the sons of Shechem, who had violated their sister. They lied to them, and they, did, they forced them to be circumcised. And when they were in their worst pain, they attacked them and killed the whole tribe. And Jacob was displeased. And he didn't say anything. But you know what? Payday someday. He didn't say anything at the moment. But years later, when he was dying, he blessed his sons. And you know, the blessing of a father and a mother mean a lot, even today. And Jacob blessed his children and gave the inheritance among each, of, each one of them because of this bloody um, deed of Simeon and Levi. Reuben's rights as the firstborn were divided. The material inheritance went to Joseph. And not to him directly, but to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. You know that one of the two of the tribes of Israel, the name of one was Ephraim. It was the largest tribe. And the other one was Manasseh. Okay? So the priestly dignity went to Levi. And the ruler's dignity went to Judah, Jacob's fourth son. Therefore, the Messiah is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Even in Revelation 5.5, we have the title of him. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. There you are, the lion of Judah. You have it behind you. Okay? The royal tribe. Lion is the symbol of royalty. 
So we see that um, after this, after Jacob's blessing upon his children, the 12 patriarchs of Israel, any further revelation about the Messiah except by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 when he said that God will raise up a prophet among you like unto me, it stopped for about 700 years till the time of King David when resumed by Nathan the prophet. God through Nathan gave David the promise of the Messiah. Nathan's prophecy to David uh, through that the messianic prophecies within the royal tribe of Judah. It was not just any family in Judah. So you notice the progression here? He comes from mankind, but not any nation, especially the nation of Shem. Not any nation of Shem, but only through Abraham. Not any child of Abraham, but Isaac. Not any child of Isaac, but Jacob, not Esau. And not any child of, G, uh, of Jacob, of the twelve, but one, Judah. And out of Judah, it was not just any family, but the fa family of David. So you, you see how it continues narrowing down. Okay, there's no, uh, the gene that's why the genealogies are so important in the Bible. That they, give us, they give us the accurate uh, description of the birth of the Messiah. So we see that uh, they're conferred to uh, David by Nathan, uh, the royal tribe of Judah, uh, will be the one that through whom the Messiah would come. And we this morning read Isaiah 11, 1, where it says, There shall be a rod that comes out of the stem of Jesse. In other words, out of the family tree of Jesse. And who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of King David. Okay, and Isaiah prophesied that 700 years, 300 years after David, 700 years before the birth of Christ, because David lived 1,000 years before Christ, okay? And we see that that was fulfilled. And from now on, the Messiah is called the son of David. That's why when you read the Gospel of Matthew, it says generations of Jesus Christ, book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? Through Abraham, he had the right to the nation, to the race, as it was, if you please, the nation of Israel. Through David, he had the right to the throne. Okay? So we see there that the promise then continues right through David's royal family. And we uh, sang also today, once in royal, uh, royal David's city. Right? How meaningful that is. Um, out of all the day of David, now David had many sons too. Now who would be the one that carries the line of the Messiah? Um, two sons became the transmitters of the messianic blessing. One is Solomon and the other one is Nathan. And they were both sons of Bathsheba. The one who committed adultery with David, Uriah's wife. Interesting, right? Now, uh, how many of you have read both the, prophet, the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke? And you notice that there's a difference? After David, there's a difference. Because Matthew's genealogy follows Solomon's line. And Luke's genealogy follows Mary's, uh, or I should say Nathan's sign. 
uh, Nathan's line. And uh, one genealogy is uh, from Solomon, descends Joseph, the um, legal father of the Lord Jesus. And uh, from Nathan is the line of uh, Mary, or rather her father, Eli. Okay? So uh, Matthew gives the ancestral tree of Joseph, and Luke that of Mary, or rather her father. Now, later the kingdom went to ruin. With King Zedekiah, the last king and descendant of David, Babylonians came in, destroyed the kingdom, and the Jewish people went into captivity to Babylon for 70 years. Okay? Now, the, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy continued. Through Zedekiah, after Zedekiah, the genealogy continued. And even though David's line lost the crown, the kingdom, the power, and the glory continued with David anyway. And in the end time, Christ, as David too, will shepherd his people and the nations. And the the, uh, prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel tell us that. So that's the family of Jesus. Okay? The family of Jesus. Then we have the place. With Nathan's prophecy to David, the question as to the family of the Messiah had been conclusively answered. But the question about the place and time was not yet revealed. Now, for this reason, Micah the prophet, we read it this morning, Micah 5, that was around 725 years before Christ. Micah's prophecy tells us the place. The place is the city of David. In other words, Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem in Hebrew means literally the house of bread. And how appropriate because Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. So the bread of life was born in the house of bread. Okay? And uh, becomes the place in which Christ the Lord should be born. So we have the family and we have the place. Now we have the time. Nearly 200 years after Micah's prophecy, Daniel, the prophet, around the year 536 B.C., announced the time in the prophecy of the the famous 70 weeks of years. Okay? In Daniel 9, 25, and 26, and many theologians consider this to be the most extraordinary prophecy ever given. That prophecy tells us that from the going forth of the decree by the king to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple, there should be 483 years. Now, when does the countdown begin? At one point. This is interesting. Are you following me? You're not bored, are you? I hope not. The decree of Cyrus was given in 536 B.C. Cyrus, the Persian emperor. But it was concerning the rebuilding of the temple. It was carried out by Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, which Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, and an ancestor of the Lord Jesus. He's in the Matthew genealogies. Okay? 
This rebuilding was carried out by Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, not Joshua the, uh, the disciple of Moses. This is another Joshua many, many years later. Joshua the high priest and the prophets Zechariah and Haggai. And that was carried out in the year 516 B.C., 20 years later. The actual rebuilding of the city was first carried out some decades later by Ezra the priest and the governor Nehemiah and the prophet Malachi. So their activity began with the decree of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes I, also a Persian king. In the seventh year of his reign, that would be 457 B.C., the beginning of Ezra's activity is the beginning of the 70-year weeks. Around 13 years later, in 445 B.C., Nehemiah would begin the building of the wall. But Artaxerxes' decree remains the beginning and going out of the command to rebuild the city. Now, adding to the 457 years, the 483 years, we are left over with 26 to 27 years. And the year 26 or 27 AD is the exact year in which, according to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Christ began to proclaim the message of the heavenly kingdom being about 30 years old. You see how accurate the Word of God is? How accurate the Word of God is. We have a perfectly divine picture of the Old, Old Testament messianic prophecies. And we see how accurately they have all been fulfilled. And do you know what this does? This should strengthen our faith. Because we need to think this way. If God fulfilled the prophecies that were supposed to be fulfilled in the past you can be more than sure that he will fulfill all the prophecies that remain to be fulfilled yet. What did the Lord Jesus say? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Not even one jot or one tittle till all has been fulfilled. So we see that we must be encouraged this Christmas tide. And may the facts of the Old Testament increase our faith in the living Savior who came to redeem us from death, from hell and perdition. So let us worship him and thank him for loving us so much. And may we be bold to proclaim to the world the wonderful news of his salvation. You know what this all comes down to? This comes down to God's love. Okay? We see the absolute love of God. Because the Bible tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And not only that, but also the gospel, I mean the epistle to John, John the apostle, who's called the apostle of love because he speaks about love so many times, tells us, in uh, his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 7, says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, 
that we might live through him. That's the message of Christmas. Right there and then. Okay? The love of God is an absolute. It is offered unconditionally. He loves us for what we are, not for our conduct. And he loves us because he himself is love. Twice we read in this chapter here, in this epistle, this, this uh, the scripture, uh, the phrase, God is love. In this phrase is hidden all the mystery of God's love for us. This love is not just something God feels for us, for love is not just a feeling. It is not just a feeling that he has. This phrase rather reveals the very essence of the nature of God. The very nature of God is love. This love was manifested perfectly when God sent his only begotten son to secure salvation for sinful men with his redeeming sacrifice. God did not turn away his face as he saw man's sin and hatred against him. But he sent Christ as a means of propitiation for their sin. And in verse 10 of this same epistle, it says in the same chapter, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love of this kind man had never seen before. And has never since, has seen since. It is not a common love. It is the unique, absolute love that constitutes the very nature of God. So love, we can say love became flesh and dwelt among us. They asked the little girl, little girl, how much does Jesus loves you? The little girl said, he loved me so much that he opened his arms and died for me. That's a great theology. That's great theology. And that's the simplicity of Christmas. Everything else the world does out there is nonsense. This is Christmas. The love of God for us. And we see how intricate the detail is throughout Scripture. And how it behooves us, all of us, to study it, to delve into the Old Testament with some help and just study those scriptures that really trace the line of the Lord Jesus to see how accurate the Word of God is in every detail. His Word never fails, nor will it ever. We can rely on the Lord and His Word, and we just praise Him for it. And we thank him for it. Let us all pray. Heavenly Father, I cannot find words to express my heart's gratitude for your great love that took me out of sin and placed me in your flock, in your family, and from death guided me to eternal life. I thank you in the name of Christ, my Savior. We thank you, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts for this infinite love of yours. 
Help us to live in a manner that is worthy of the love you have for us. We praise you this day that we can be here and worship you and remember this Christmas tide, this great event, which was the beginning of your redeeming work on earth. It was consummated on a cross, a tomb, and then an empty tomb, a, a, a resurrection, and an ascension. We thank you, Father, that you finished the work through your Son. It is a perfect work. And thank you that we are the heirs of that perfect work by faith and by your grace this day. Help us to be faithful witnesses to you, to others, dear Lord. Your witnesses to others, telling them about your love, your sacrifice for us. May your name be glorified now and forever this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.